This is episode number 18 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Jesse Mundell and Anita Lambert. And today we're going to be having um, our second question and answer episode uh, from questions from people just like you in terms of asking anything to do with pelvic health, women's health, um, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, motherhood, um, and exercise. So why don't we go into our first question, which was from Peyton. And she titled it, which I really liked and just like too, is Prolapse 101. Because she was asking, what is it? How do you get it? The importance of posture, different grades, likelihood of rehabbing without surgery, and how to know if your physio knows how to deal uh, with prolapse and are they educated and what to look for. Um, so why don't we start off with what is a prolapse? And there's a number of different types. So I'll briefly kind of go through each one. So a cystocele refers to when the bladder um, starts to lean into the vaginal canal. Um, a urethroceal refers to more the urethra. Um, that's... Uh, is sitting lower. Um, a uterine prolapse refers to kind of the cervix in the uterus sitting lower in the vaginal canal. A rectocele is when the rectum starts to lean into the vaginal canal. And I always like to mention this is a rectocele is different than a rectal prolapse. So a rectal prolapse is actually the rectum um, descending out or towards the rectal opening. So a rectocele refers to more just the rectum leaning into the vaginal canal. There's also a vaginal vault prolapse. So this um, generally is after a hysterectomy where the upper part of the vagina starts to bulge or lower into the vaginal canal because the uterus is no longer there after a hysterectomy. So it doesn't get that same support at the top. So those are kind of the main types of prolapse. Um, and then kind of how do you get it? So Jess, do you want to go into some different reasons why someone might experience a prolapse? Yeah, there can really be so many factors at play for how prolapse might occur often. And in this context, when we're talking about pregnancy, birth, postpartum period, we will be perhaps having symptoms of prolapse postpartum and that when it that's when it might come to someone's attention initially. But it's not simply just because we've been pregnant or we've had a baby that prolapse can occur. Obviously, there are things that might happen during labor and birth itself that can lead to prolapse uh, starting to develop. And we can get into those more in a second. But there's also so many things that we need to consider in our entire life and our lifestyle and our tendencies in terms of bathroom and bowel habits 
um, our breath, our alignment, how we are lifting loads, what we're doing with our alignment and our breathing when we are under chronic loads in our life. Um, and then just looking back at our histories as well in terms of perhaps athletic history or uh, I know uh, an example that sometimes people will bring to me is that they've been singers for a long, long time in their life and they have been doing a lot of interesting breath techniques and breath holding. So there are a lot of different factors at play. But Anita, what might come up during labor and birth that could potentially lead to developing prolapse? Yeah, so there's a number of factors. And I always want to preface this that just because any of the different factors I talk about, if they do happen in your birth, to know that it's not an absolute. So having any of this happen does not guarantee you're going to have a prolapse. It's just that the risk of it can be there. So one is prolonged pushing. Um, and there's variations on what people consider prolonged. Um, often what I've heard is that kind of two hours or more of pushing. Um, but I would say clinically, it's not always the case. I've had some women who pushed way longer than that and don't have a prolapse. And I've had some women who pushed way less than that and have a prolapse. So prolonged pushing can be a factor. Also forceps or vacuum, just because of kind of the positioning and those two different interventions, how they can affect the pelvic floor, um, as well as pressure internally that can um, contribute to prolapse, as well as episiotomy or tearing, because again, it's compromised in the tissue. Um, and depending how the tissue heals, but also the time that we give that tissue to heal um, can contribute as well. So those are specifics during labor and birth that could be a factor in a prolapse. In terms of the different grades of prolapse, there is a scale that is typically used. I think they're the most commonly used scale is grading one, two, three, four. And mm -hmm. that just essentially grades it based on how much descent of that pelvic organ is happening. Correct? Yes. Yeah. And I'd say there's there, I've seen two different uh, grading systems in terms of exactly where the prolapse sits in terms of what grade it gets, but I'll give kind of a rough idea, kind of combining the two ways. So a grade one um, can be that the organ is in the vaginal canal, like it's felt in the vaginal canal, vaginal canal during the assessment. And usually the standard assessment is a valsalva, valsalva so a bearing down, um, and can be as long as seven seconds to bear down to get a true reading. Um, so a grade one would be still in the vaginal canal um, further up. So you may be able to, or you would be able to feel it as a practitioner. Um, and then a grade two, some people see it as it's in the vaginal canal, but above the vaginal opening. Others grade a grade two is that it would go to the opening. Um, so in that area would be a grade two. A grade three would be that it's slightly going past the vaginal opening and a grade four would mean it's it's um, quite a bit past the vaginal opening with a valsalva. So often testing it, I was trained in terms of to look at the position of the organs at rest with a cough and then with a bearing down or a valsalva type move to get an idea of how things change during any of those movements. Um, another way to check too is depending on the client that I'm seeing and the symptoms they're having, I'll also even check 
what the position of the organ is in standing. So we end up using a mirror. Um, I don't necessarily have them bear down in standing. It's more what they want me to check. So sometimes it's just at rest or with certain movements that we'll check together um, so that they understand what they're actually seeing. Because I do have a lot of clients who never looked prior to birth and now feel that they have a prolapse but they don't even know what they're looking at at the opening. So sometimes that gives women just more information and confidence of what they're seeing and how things are changing. That's awesome. I was just going to ask you about that in terms of your assessment versus supine and lying on back and the differences because people can feel very different things in those positions. Yeah. Yeah. So Peyton was also asking the likelihood of rehabbing prolapse without surgery in a grade one or grade two where... Uh, the severity, let's say, is lesser? Mm -hmm. So I would start answering this with rehabbing has a different meaning to different clients. And I know, Jess, you see this as well. So for some, it may be more sensations or symptoms. So whether it's leaking of urine, stool, or gas because of the prolapse, a heaviness, um, a feeling of a tampon falling out, um, a backache, these are sometimes symptoms that are more bothersome to them than the actual position of the prolapse. So for some, um, it's definitely possible to rehab so that they're not feeling these symptoms or we're working towards them getting back to all the activities they want to do symptom-free. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is the actual grade of the prolapse. And research has shown that it can be possible for it to lift, we call one grade. Um, And I would love to say that we can guarantee that that's going to happen for everyone, but we can't guarantee that. Basically, we want to see how the body responds to all these new strategies, but also the reasoning for the prolapse. So for some, it's more to do with a pressure. So just how how, uh, she was talking about, you know, this pressure from above or constantly clenching the abs or constantly straining with a bowel movement, that's pressure from above. And once we get rid of that and actually strengthen the whole core canister, sometimes that's enough to lift the prolapse. But sometimes if the prolapse is there due to the ligaments and fascia above the organ holding it there, if it's been stretched to a certain point, that's not something we can actually change. We can only change other factors involved. So I always talk to clients about that. And a lot of my clients, it's more about the symptoms. They just don't want to feel anything and they want to feel good and be able to exercise again. So to answer that, it's really individual. But yes, it is possible to lift it um, and it is possible to get rid of symptoms as well. I love this last question from Peyton again on this topic of pelvic organ prolapse because I feel like especially... Uh, knowing and working with such fantastic physios as yourself, I feel um, cautious with who I refer and recommend my clients to a lot. So she's wondering, how do you know if your PT knows the deal on prolapse, is educated on this topic, and what to look for when they don't know? Mm -hmm. So some things to keep in mind. Um, if you're seeing a physio and all they're giving you is Kegels, especially lying down, um, that may be a sign that they haven't done other education. Um, just because yes, you may need to learn how to activate in line, but there's gotta be so many more steps. So for example, if someone wants to run and be able to manage their prolapse and all you do is some Kegels lying down, that's, there's so much in between that. 
So that's something to keep in mind. Also, even if your physio is only talking about the pelvic floor and they're not talking about the whole core canister and they're not talking about pressure and also all the surrounding muscles that work together with your core canister, that can also be a sign of um, that they may not be bringing everything into the picture that can help the prolapse. So I'd say those are the key things. And then also that they want to get you back to your goals. So if you have someone saying, well, you're never going to run again, you're never going to lift weights again. Um, there's just so many kind of can't, can't, can't. Um, also to keep that in mind, because as a physio, like our role is to get you back to exercise, feeling good. And it may be that you need to modify something, or it may be that you need to take a slight break from something. Um, but always the goal should to be to get you back to those exercises, feeling the best that you possibly can. I love that advice. So, so smart. Last question on prolapse from Jessica. When my doctor says I have a slight cystocele and seems utterly unconcerned, should I be unconcerned too? Yeah, I would say that's, it's a good question. And I would say, if anything, to get another opinion. So, um, and especially I would say seeing a pelvic physio, um, because we often do a really detailed assessment and look at the whole picture as well. And again, can assess you in different positions um, and provide a lot of education. Because I think a slight cystocele, well, to anyone, can mean so many different things. Um, so for some, you might be told a slight cystocele because it's not outside of your body, but it may be at the opening. And to you, that might not be slight or that might be concerning or it may not. So I think if anything, get a second opinion, whether from another physician, but also I would say to see a pelvic floor physio so then you can get more information um, and a plan for actually how to change things if you do want to change things. Yeah, that is the advice that I would give to my clients when they have this question. And often this question does come up because they have not seen pelvic floor, pelvic health physio yet. They have been assessed by their... OBGYN or another uh, healthcare professional midwife um, and just from my personal experience and from so much of what I heard have heard the assessment process is just so different with those types of health professionals versus public health physio that it can just be so interesting and such a good education if possible to get that assessment done by a public health physio. Yeah and actually just going along with what uh, you're saying, Jess, is so as a pelvic floor physio, we don't assess with a speculum, whereas a physician often will. And so for anyone listening, a speculum is this kind of metal kind of looking device that you would see if they do a pap exam, that's what they're inserting um, internally as well. And what happens is when they use that to assess a prolapse, they're actually hiding part of it. So they won't necessarily get a true reading because the speculum is kind of in the way. So again, to keep that in mind, and yes, I would recommend seeing a public physio just for more information. All right, next up from Trisha, what are your go-to snacks and tiny meals that are decently healthy? I love that wording there. Having an eight-week-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old equals breastfeeding makes it difficult some days to eat well. She says, I eat a lot of cereal for quick meals and grab apples to go, but sometimes it's like, do I do my makeup and feel good about myself while I'm out or eat? <laughs> what are your go-to snacks? <laughs> oh, I would say, 
Oh, my go-to. Definitely, like, I'm smoothies all the way. Um, I had them a ton before I had Pippa, but I can't even tell you. I mean, and I had them throughout labor. Like, my doula made me smoothies throughout labor, and my husband made them postpartum. And they're still my favorite thing, and my daughter loves them. So I love smoothies because there are so many options. You can pack so much good stuff, like protein, collagen, veggies, and they can actually taste good. So, and it's something, especially with your little ones, not so much your eight week old, but your three and a half year old, like you can share it with them. So smoothies, definitely my go-to. Um, I know those first few weeks postpartum omelets were key for me. Um, because again, it was the protein and you could pack veggies into it. And I, I love omelets, so it kind of worked out well. And, and then later on, you can actually, what I make now, instead of omelets to go, I'll make frittata muffins. Um, so basically, it's like an omelet, but in a muffin tin. And my daughter loves them, and it, they're easy to bring around. And then also protein ba- bars or protein balls. So whether I can make them, which I love to, if I can't, then I'll buy them. Because again, I find for me, it's like I need that substance to keep me full, but keep my energy up as well. So those are kind of, I would say, my top three. What about you, Jess? Yeah, I love that. Same over here, basically everything you're mentioning. I would say just in terms of this specific question, mentioning cereal and apples, absolutely nothing wrong with that or nothing wrong with carbohydrates. But sometimes I think that we underestimate how much protein and fat we need to actually keep our energy up and keep us satiated a little bit longer. And in this particular period, when you have an eight-week-old and a -a three-and-a-half-year-old, you don't have lots of time to eat in general, let alone to eat nutritious meals. So if you can pack as much fat and protein into a specific snack, into a meal, it can just let you live a little bit longer feeling okay. Yeah, and I love anything you can eat with one hand, which I know sounds kind of silly, but it made way more sense to me after I gave birth. So even if like you love cereal, things that are really quick, and a lot of this you can find on Pinterest um, for recipes is like overnight oats or like different things like that, that it's kind of like a cereal, you can just make it in a mason jar or some sort of jar, make it the night before, have them in the fridge, easy to go. Um, And even with the apples, like I'm with Jess, like what you're talking about, there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to add protein to it, have another little um, kind of container, whether it's like almond butter, peanut butter, something. So then you're getting some protein and something that'll fill you up to go with your apples as well. I, in thinking about this question earlier today, I was thinking about how much I'm kind of dreading this period postpartum of being so starving all the time there's nothing like that breastfeeding hunger for me that I've ever experienced in my life like nothing compared to pregnancy hunger that the amount of energy that you need in that postpartum period Mm -hmm. to recover in general and then breastfeeding on top of that that was the wildest sensation I've ever experienced in terms of food and nutrition yeah you feel like you could just eat all the time. Yeah, and you totally need to. Yeah. All right, next up, Sylvia, is it safe to practice inversions, specifically headstand or handstand while being pregnant? What are possible complications and are there any benefits? So I would say first with this, I would just check with your care provider because there may be some medical reasons, whether it's blood pressure or even placenta position that they may recommend not um, doing inversion. So I would check with them first. Um, If medically everything is all okay, in terms of pelvic floor and core, I would say there's not 
There's not a whole lot. Like I would say, if you have a diastasis where there isn't tension, that could play a role with being inverted, like depending on where the pressure is going. Um, but I do know I've had some clients who do inversions, not necessarily headstand and handstand, but other types of inversions who have vulvar varicosities or prolapse, and they actually find that kind of inversion type position gives them some relief. So there may be some benefits, but I always say with inversions, the first thing is you need to check with your care provider because if there's medical reasons not to do it, then it's just, it's not worth doing. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I do handstands a lot just in general not not at this stage of pregnancy at 35 weeks pregnant I was actually thinking about testing it today and decided against it but I noticed back earlier in pregnancy when I would do handstands and I filmed myself a couple times and I could see my diastasis doming in specific places so that was interesting for me it's not something I think I noticed in my last pregnancy but I do inversions, like the spinning babies one they recommend, mm -hmm. where you are knees elevated up on, uh, say, a couple of stairs and then elbows or hands down on the floor. And that can feel really relieving on my pelvis and uterine ligaments. So that might be something, uh, it might be an option. But also you can do that, say, a downward dog type position. If that doesn't feel good, just down on the floor, kneeling. And then coming down onto the elbows and that can be inverted enough for people to feel some relief and some benefit in the pelvis and the pelvic floor. Um, so next, our next question is from Danielle and she asks, can you put too much tension into your pelvic floor from having sex after having sex with my husband and she put TMI, but as me and Jess are like, nothing is TMI. Um, she's like, we were in doggy style, but afterwards and all the next morning, it felt like my lower abdominals were heavy or full. I'm 27 weeks pregnant and never felt this prior to pregnancy. My first thought on this question is that it absolutely could be possible to be creating tension held in the pelvic floor from having intercourse, whether that be during itself, you are creating a lot of downward pressure onto the pelvic floor. I know... I get comments about this from clients who put pressure on themselves to orgasm during sex and they feel like they're building up a lot of pressure and tension in the pelvic floor because they are, this intention of trying to orgasm is happening throughout that entire event. I've also had conversations about this with other pelvic health physios, specifically Tracy Scher, who has seen patients and clients who are doing, say, more extreme acts in the sexual health realm. And they are doing techniques during sex where they are putting a lot of downward pressure onto the pelvic floor muscles. Um, Tracy would refer to this as squirting or trying to squirt, and this could absolutely be causing issues or potential issues to the pelvic floor. It seems like in this particular case... She's never felt this prior to pregnancy. She's 27 weeks pregnant. Things might be just shifting and changing in her core and her pelvic floor more now as she's getting into later stages of pregnancy. So perhaps this is a one-off event. Perhaps that specific position might not be super comfortable for her now at this point. What do you have to say on this one? Yeah, yeah no, everything you said, Jess, um, is great. And yeah, I would say because I'm not, I'm not sure... If Danielle has seen a pelvic physio before, I would say it's worth it. So because I, I'm not sure from her question if 
she already has tension in her pelvic floor or if you've seen a physio and there's no tension but you're just feeling this with sex um it yeah i would say in terms of seeing a pelvic physio to to really assess what's going on internally um and yeah if this is a one-time thing or if this has been going on for a while and i agree too in terms of is it position dependent um just because we we don't always think about it but as a fitness professional and as a health uh public health physio um anatomically we know in terms of the different positions how it puts different pressure even on the organs but on your abdomen um so it just may not be a comfortable position at this point in pregnancy but seeing a public physio and also even bringing it up to your care provider can be worth doing just to have that discussion from christine i'm seeing a physio in pregnancy who specializes in public health but does not do internal work in our practice at all is it worth seeing someone who does do internal work too Mm-hmm. So I would say it's worth seeing both. Um, I never would want to tell a client to stop seeing a physio and just to see a pelvic physio because they can do both. Um, and I say this from experience, like the first few years as a physio, I was only external and I saw a lot of um, expecting moms and I felt like there was a lot of, in a lot of ways I helped. Um, now being a public health physio, I now know so many benefits of that internal portion and bringing that together. So I would say it could benefit by still seeing the, the physio you're seeing currently in pregnancy who does external work, but then also even seeing an internal physio who can like be an additional benefit and the two of them can actually talk and collaborate and that'll really benefit you because the other physio will have even more of a history with you. So I would say it's, it's worth seeing both. So then you'll truly know what's going on in the pelvic floor and even cueing in tips for what to think about when you're in labor, that's specific to your pelvic floor, your core and your needs as well. I can't remember if we've talked about this yet or not, but in terms of internal pelvic floor work during (laughs) pregnancy, when is it safe to do that? Uh, do you have any specific guidelines that you follow? I don't. Um, I go based on when the client feels comfortable. I would say most women come after their first trimester um, for various reasons. For some, they just want to wait to get that okay from the first trimester. Um, others, it, it's still becoming a reality in their first trimester. So they're not even thinking about their pelvic floor or anything at that point. Um, and others too, if they've had complications or fertility issues, they tend to want to wait. Um, and especially you want to get the go ahead from your doctor. So generally if you've given the go ahead for internal exams from them or for intercourse, so having a pelvic floor assessment during pregnancy, if you've given, been given the go ahead for both of those should totally be fine. Um, I always explain to you in pregnancy, we're not going to your cervix. Like we're not searching for your cervix. We're not touching your cervix. Um, and again, even if that were to happen, it it's not likely going to cause an issue. But I just always let clients know, like, we're just going to the muscles around the pelvic floor. We're not checking the cervix ever. I did have one client ask, this was a few years ago, if I could check if she was dilated, I was like, no. That is nowhere near in our scope of practice. That's for your care provider to do. We're just here to help with the muscles. Um, And uh, yeah, 
So in terms of just to know here, and we're all trained to do that during pregnancy, and there's so many things that can come up in pregnancy that are pelvic floor related. Also, tailbone pain is super common, and we can get to that through the pelvic floor. To really get to the tailbone, it's ideal um, to check the pelvic floor rectally, which we are all trained to do as well. And I had that myself in pregnancy, I had some tailbone pain resurface, and I had a colleague release some tension around the tailbone, which was, it just solved the issue. Okay, that's perfect information. I think that's so helpful for people who might be pregnant to hear that you are, you're treating the muscles and this is not a cervical check. I know a lot of people can be really nervous about that, but very different type of work that you are doing. And I would say one other thing too, is that um, it's also never too late. So I know I've had some clients where literally we're doing an assessment, we're doing prenatal prep, postpartum recovery, all in one session, and they're 37 weeks pregnant. The latest I've seen is actually 40 weeks. Um, and so it's never too late because you can, there's so much information you can gather before you give birth. And even to have that information to prepare you for postpartum recovery um, is key as well. Yeah, such good stuff. Okay, this question from Lindsay is one that I am asked all the time, so I can't wait to hear what you say about this as a public health physio yourself. She's wondering, if you are looking for a new public health physio or going for the first time, what are some big things to look for in choosing the best provider for you? Any red flags? I would definitely kind of notice even how things start. You should feel extremely comfortable. Um, they should be explained what they do as a pelvic physio. I always have um, my pelvic model with muscles. So as we get further into the assessment, I'm explaining and showing the muscles and especially for the internal assessment before we do an internal, um, how I actually check the muscles, getting consent, getting feedback, um, all of that. So that's definitely a big thing. I would say when you're also starting out, they should be taking a pretty detailed history. And that includes if you've already given birth or if you're going to be giving birth, because that's going to give them insight into what your pelvic floor and core has gone through, as well as perhaps concerns for your upcoming birth or things that you want to address. Um, always making sure they're asking about your goals and anything they're recommending, whether it's exercise, education, new habits should all be directed towards your specific goals. Um, and again, kind of going back to the uh, prolapse question is if they're just giving you Kegels lying on your back and that's it, perhaps that's maybe where they start, which isn't necessarily bad. Um, but if that's all you're ever getting, um, it's just something just to be mindful of. And they should really be talking about the whole core canister that Jess and I always talk about and not just isolating your pelvic floor. Just with what we know now, we've moved beyond just isolating the pelvic floor. Also, too, in terms of, again, similar to the prolapse question, if you have certain goals that you want to get back to and they're just saying, well, you're never going to be able to do that, you can't get back to that, that's just not going to happen, Um that's something to ask questions about because as pelvic physios, as a physio in general, our goal is to get you back to your goals. And while there may be modifications or changes that may be needed to get you there, that should always be your physiotherapist's goal is to work towards that. I know this isn't always possible for people based on their healthcare insurance or their location but personally I have tried multiple different pelvic health physios in our specific area and 
a couple I've drived with and others I haven't at all. So it really can be so dependent on your feelings regarding that particular provider, your personalities, how you match up, how you don't match up. A biggie for me is the language that someone is using, any healthcare provider, especially pelvic health physio, working with prenatal and postnatal populations. I just think the language used can be so important. One particular physio that I did see postpartum, the language used was very doom and gloom, and that is not something that you have to stay with in terms of that physio. I think there's a big difference between being realistic in the assessment and diagnosis, but then also making someone fearful and scared. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is they should be giving you hope. And again, yes, realistic in terms of what you want. But if you're leaving feeling worse and that you have less answers and that, you know, so many things in your life are going to change negatively, then that's, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Last question here from Dana. She is 28 weeks into her second pregnancy and is wondering about suggestions for staying relaxed during labor other than breathing techniques. What else did you do? Yeah, so something I go through with my clients as part of um, prenatal prep. So we talk about this more in the third trimester and it was also these are ideas I used myself in my labor. I tell clients to think about all five senses because we can use all senses to actually create create relaxation aside from breathing techniques so for example if you think of the sense of touch so this could include water whether it's a tub or a shower if you love water before you go into labor you may want to have that on your list if you hate water if you're fearful of water it makes you stressed not going to be on your list um and then again, with that, even knowing ahead of time, if you're planning a home birth do you and you like water, are you going to be renting a tub or is the tub you have fine or maybe you don't have a tub? So again, thinking of that ahead of time, other things are like hip squeezes or sacral counter pressure, which is something your partner um, or support person or doula could do for you, which can again help with relaxation um, and pain management using a birth ball, whether you're sitting or kneeling and leaning over it is great as well. Using the wall or partner support person or doula to lean on um, so that you can actually use gravity and sway your hips. I talk about this like if you picture the grade seven slow dance where you're kind of like holding the neck of the person you're dancing with. You're kind of far away, but you're swaying. I use this a ton um, in my labor and I think back to it and I remember a time my husband was in the kitchen and I think he was making another smoothie or something and I remember getting like really anxious being like you need to get back here another contraction is coming and I need you um so as an as a laboring person you'll get into a rhythm with certain things so you may find something works really well for you so I I that just happened to work for me in labor last time um and then also massage so whether the feet the back, the jaw, because also tension in your jaw could be a sign there's tension actually in your pelvis as well. So different massage techniques. So these are not that you have to use all these, not that you have to like all these, but again, thinking of that sense of touch, what could actually be helpful. And then going to hearing. So whether music or meditation, um, having that set up, whether you have a device with you at home, if you're going to a hospital, I always tell clients bring earphones because you don't know what other sounds are going to be there so you can zone out or I have clients who like silence so I tell them to bring earplugs so then they can actually get that and zone out. 
um, any visual relaxation strategies. So whether it's birth affirmations written out, videos or pictures, whether hard copies or on a device, which will actually help you relax or laugh, which I know laughing in labor is the last thing you think about. <laughs> but when you laugh, you actually are more relaxed. So I tell clients, especially if it's perhaps a subsequent birth, I'm like, if you have pictures or videos of your other children that just make you relax and smile, have those with you as well um, in terms of taste. So making sure you're drinking and eating anyways, because you do want that to stay hydrated and nourished, regardless how long your marathon of birth is going to be, whether it's two hours or two to three days. Um, and having things that you like, right? Like if you're tasting or drinking something you enjoy, that's going to help you relax. And then lastly, smell. So the one thing that that comes to mind for me is essential oils. Um, for me, I had lavender diffusing the whole time. And even my midwives were like, this is actually really relaxing to have this. Um, and for anyone, uh, whether you know or don't know about evidence-based birth, um, I highly recommend checking them out. Um, they, it's a great website, but also they now have a podcast. And one of their recent podcasts was actually on the evidence for aromatherapy, aromatherapy during birth. And there was research to show positive effects in terms of relaxation. So different ways of using essential oils. So, and then any other um, ways of using that sense of smell. So basically think of your five senses, make a list of things that work for you, and you may use that in labor to help relax. I love all of these so much. Two main things that I remember from labor is that all I wanted to drink was Diet Pepsi. <laughs> Luckily, my mom was at the house with us, so she went to the store and got me Diet Pepsi. That was amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For like yeah. 30 hours into it at that point. And the second thing was that I had these like mini mantras, which were essentially just singular words that I would repeat myself or that I would have Randy, my husband, repeat when I was going through contractions. So things like ease or open or relax just very simple things that would bring my attention and focus back to the moment mm -hmm. yeah so yeah with hearing from both what Jess used and I used and there's no right or wrong I think that's the biggest thing is just getting these ideas ahead of time I always tell clients, write them down. Don't just verbalize them to your support person, your partner, your doula. That won't be enough because in the moment, there's going to be a lot of other things going on. And especially partners, they tend not to remember in the midst of labor what you may have told them before. So have it written down, which will give both of you more confidence. Um, and a doula often will have things written down as well. So keeping those in mind and Hopefully that helps Dana because breathing is great. I definitely would say that's top of the list. Um, but all these other techniques can also help relax the whole body. Okay, everybody, that is it for this episode number 18, another Q&A round. On the next episode, we have Haley Shevner, an incredible fitness coach in this industry. We will be speaking with Haley about her work with prenatal, postnatal populations, her personal experience returning to exercise and navigating her athleticism with pelvic organ prolapse, strategies for exercise with prolapse, and some exciting new things coming from Haley and for our industry on kettlebell training with core and pelvic floor dysfunction.
We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 